Allow me to introduce Dr. Ronald Trokel from Wilkent University, an esteemed researcher with an impressive body of work in the field of optoelectronics and photonic crystals. Dr. Tokel is an extraordinary teacher with the ability to spark interest and show important questions and innovations down the line. Dr. Tokel's work stands at the cutting edge of innovation, landing theoretical inquiry with practical application to unravel some of the most intricate problems in the physics today. In out for his work on photo photonic crystals and optoelectronics, Dr. Tokel's research is driven by a deep fascination with light and its interaction with matter. His work promises significant advancements in these fields, revolutionizing how we harness and manipulate light in various applications, ranging from communications via holograms and energy. One of the standout achievements of Dr. Tokel's career is his significant work on holograms, which have taught the every inspiring visions of science fiction closer to reality. His work in this area demonstrates how we have fundamental, how fundamental research can lead to remarkable technological advancements. Dr. Tokel's work on deep subsurface laser processing and selective chemical etching has already made substantial improvements in the manufacturing process of silicon wafers. As he continues his work in this area, we can anticipate further innovations that will redefine the way we approach manufacturing in the microelectronics industry. In sum, Dr. Tokel's research continues to push the boundaries of our understanding of light, matter, and the interface between them. His work has profound implications, not just for physics, but also how we approach technological innovation and manufacturing. I present to you, Dr. Onur Tokel. İngilizceye geçiyorum şimdi. Evet, evet. Daha fazla insana ulaşırız diye düşündük orada. Thank you for this opportunity and thank you so much for coming. 
I'm starting with the questions. You are having a nice life filled with creation and meaningful results. What is the point of this life, in your humble opinion? A very philosophical one. Life or in general life? In general life. Well, okay. It depends on on which points in the life spectrum of all um, philosophy or philosophy of life you are on. But in general, um, it seems to be a good idea to create meaning in the life itself. And in different stages of life, you can create that meaning from uh, different things. So, for instance, you can have a kid, and that is uh, the meaning of life. You can have a nice work, and that could be a meaning of life. And then there is the option of having work life balance, and that balancing that out is the meaning of life. But uh, just like there is no um, absolute reference point in Galilean relativity. Uh, there is no absolute reference point for this question as well. So in some sense, it's something that you should create out for yourself. And sure. it means that it changes from every person to every person. And probably that's why there are so many different political views, religious views, and all these kind of things. And each one has right in their own sense. You mentioned balancing. How do you do it? And do you struggle with that? Um, it's a tricky thing because, as I mentioned, there is something called work-life balance, but yeah. there is never an absolute uniform balance. You know, from thermodynamics, everything is balanced. You get into an equilibrium, and equilibrium means a very dull situation, but it changes and it's pretty much very stable, and that is the easiest thing to manage. So if you want to have some kind of dynamics, then you need to perturb the system. And that perturbation creates a pattern and it creates, just like the wind outside, some kind of uh, local unbalance, and then you need to manage it, right? Yeah. So that's more of an art than science itself. Sure. Uh, there is, uh, if you are looking for a recipe, I don't have a recipe for that one, but uh, uh, what I can say is you, you need a little bit of one, but imbalance every once in a while so that you get somewhere. Cool, cool. So, what are you striving for? Do you have any role models? And what kind of principles do they have? This is like a philosophy discussion. <laughs> <laughs> it starts that way. Mm -hmm. Role models, uh, you can have role models in your life in different aspects. You can have friends uh, that could help you to balance those things, as we have talked about. You can have, in your work, you can have role models. Or you can have role models that are in your work that are also your friends at the best if you can find one of those things. Um, I have been lucky in uh, those aspects, I think, personally. And uh, so I value uh, good people and I like to, if I can, keep in quotation marks good people uh, in close contact. Sure. Uh, so uh, I, I thought about historical figures while writing this one. Mm -hmm. Do you have any historical ones that you consider even friends? Well, like if you, I consider any historical role models, yeah. uh, a couple of people would pop up um, from different uh, walks of life. For instance, of course, for pretty much many people in Turkey, Atatürk would be a fundamental role model, in, in particular, that you consider that I can have read the 
there's a lot of storm that I wonder about outside. Anyway, um, and the car alarms are running out. <laughs> anyway, if I consider um, what I was saying, yes, I, I read the history. I actually like history, so I have read the history of uh, the Roman Empire, Ottoman Empire, uh, all these things. So uh, I, I would actually, since this is a podcast for the younger audience, I assume, I would definitely suggest reading history, not because you can learn lessons. Everybody says you learn lessons from history, but you can learn patterns. That's more important. And those patterns have some kind of um, meaning, if I refer to the first question, in some sense. And if you can make sense out of those things, that's useful and fun. That is for me. And uh, Atatürk, in that example, has encountered too many uh, struggles. And one may ask, why did he bark? Right? And what was the point? He would say that, okay, I don't care. And things would be different for him, probably easier, potentially, for sure, sure. No, but um, it, he was not running away from challenges, okay? And in that sense, I think he created meaning for himself during that process, so that refers to your second question. So yes, these are well-prepared questions. <laughs> uh, a second example would be um, from Bert. Um, Richard Feynman is uh, from his pedagogical, but not necessarily for his character, which I usually enjoy, but he has too many quirks for my taste at this point. <laughs> uh, but then uh, the, his pedagogical style is something that I would uh, very much like to emulate. Another one in his pedagogical style would be Steven Weinberg. I would uh, recommend for you guys to read the first three minutes by him. And I, he recently passed away, and uh, he wrote a last book uh, just before he died, and now it's out, uh, published. I think it's something like Modern Physics or something like this, which I'm, I'm trying to get my hands on, so I, maybe we can take it as our, well, one of our recommended textbooks yeah, in the Modern Physics class, but I, I need to get the book first. I, I can't think out more, but I think in the interest of time, I yeah, yeah. Them out for now. That, that's time for now. Maybe in the second one we will ask you this one again. So, uh, what makes physics beautiful to you? Well, I guess I keep referring to the previous questions, but you, uh, you should. I, I kind of like with, uh, the patterns that emerge at different levels of understanding. <laughs> so, um, and I was like that from the beginning, from T equal to zero. So it was quite a natural path for me to be uh, in this uh, field. Um, so uh, understanding that pattern is very much fun, mm -hmm. and there are some practical applications as well. So they are also a benefit, uh, but uh, not necessarily so that they're. Everyone wants to while you understand and there, the, there is this aha moment, so that's very much the fun part of it, essentially. It boils down to this. So unfortunately, when you write a proposal to a funding agency, you don't get to say that, okay, I am going to be very happy by understanding this, please give me money. Uh, that doesn't work that way yeah. in the real world, but you need practice. Uh, you, you can have some motivations to, there is an art to that as well, you need to motivate what you do. Uh, 
platform. But uh, if you can do them both, of course, it's uh, more productive in real life. Yeah. So, how did that fascination of physics start with you? Was it teachers, books, media, and when? I don't remember. So it was a very early time. <laughs> but but what I was remembering in the early times was that it's not necessarily maybe around middle school, before high school, it's about very early in high school, like around those times maybe. I actually recognized that uh, mathematics that is in my head happens to predict what's happening in an outside world, which I had nothing to do in principle. So there is this interesting coupling effect between my brain and the universe. Mm -hmm. So that is, uh, I, th I think before even doing the math, I could kind of sense that uh, I don't necessarily remember exactly when or how, but that, that is probably fed with, with something. Uh, I don't know what fed that. It's probably an emotional animal itself, but uh, once you have that kind of fun, you try to enforce it or do enforce it. And you do things like you keep reading and you keep playing strategy games when you get older and you keep reading history to see patterns and then when you get to learn math, then you do the equations and compare experiments and then you do experiments and it goes on like that so you can find ways of reinforcing uh, that kind of uh, thinking. And every single time it works in an interesting and magical way. So there is this you know, article, the unreasonable uh, effectiveness of mathematics. Mathematics, yeah. right? So it's quite uh, magical in some sense. Yeah. yeah. You you you said some kind of coupling. Why is that, and how how do you think about that? I answered that part. It's very magical. Yeah. So, <laughs> I don't know if we will know exactly when, but it's probably relating to the fundamental uh, things that relate to consciousness itself. Yeah. Even, you know, there are theories about quantum mechanics having the observer or the consciousness <laughs> being involved in the experiment and doing the wave function collapse, those yeah. kind of. So, apparently, consciousness has some kind of relationship with the real world. Uh, some kind of coupling is actually theoretically proposed there, but we are in a very early stage to make concrete uh, claims about this. Yeah, I get But what we can do is we can still uh, reinforce this business of science itself. Uh, did it ever went down that fascination, that creativity, that interest that you have in physics? What did you do when that happened, and if not, how did you protect it? from the environment? Very, very interesting question. How do you protect your inner fire in some sense? Yeah. So when I am looking to hire students in my research group, I always say that I need students with something like an internal combustion engine. Yeah. It's Daniel Muller in Turkish. So what we want is a student that is burning their engine from inside rather than you push the students forward because you can't push the students on the sofa but if it is an internal engine, internal combustion engine like uh, facility, then that keeps stuff propagating, right? So the answer is basically we try to have that kind of self-propagation and uh, it's kind of like the heart, right? How do you keep your heart running? Uh, you, don't do you don't do anything, it's just that you protect it. If something happens, you can give an electrical shock to restart it, <laughs> yeah. but that's a painful and risky process. 
So I think that's my knowledge at this point. I don't well, what's the electroshock though, if it exists? I mean, it depends on the... I don't want to take that much in for it, so <laughs> a specific example, I can go over a specific case. Hmm. I don't think I have one, but like in, in my years, in undergraduate years, you struggle with a course, for example, then what do you do? Your, your is grades it the case that the down. course is very hard or you happen to miss some stuff in the beginning and you cannot catch up or you just... The second one, or probably. The second one. You, you miss some stuff and you, you don't see the point in catching up anymore because you missed a lot. Well, you would you should at least try to keep that contained to that class and do not contaminate the other Others. classes with that. Yeah. And then one day you can go and read yourself and try to catch up at your own pace. And if that is a very uh, desperate situation, you can really take the course. <laughs> sure, sure. Uh, so, do you think there is anything that physics can't explain? We talked about consciousness cannot. a little bit. Explain. Cannot. Yeah. Many things. Yeah, so there are, um, well, there are certain things that we hope that it will explain one day, which go to fundamental physics, for instance, or the beginning of the universe. Um, the physics or science in general works with a certain paradigm, and that works with doing experiments. So if you happen to uh, be in a time and space that does not allow you to do certain experiments <laughs> that will not be explained. For instance, uh, the universe is expanding, right? <laughs> all the stars are getting further and further away from us, including all the galaxies. So if you wait long enough, that means that you won't see any stars in the sky. And if we were living, maybe 10 billions, 100 billions in the future. Physics would be much different. If it's astronomy, you would look at the star, you would see a total black thing, and you would have a telescope to bother uh, looking. I mean, with a telescope, maybe you can see something, but if you wait long enough, there won't be the photons coming. So, uh, you see, ex experiments are required, at least in the current paradigm. Of course, there are some newly emerging scientific paradigm-like things. The fundamental problem here, what I'm referring to, is parallel universes and things like uh, yeah. there are different interpretations, interpretations and then if uh, quantum mechanics-wise there are different universes, how do you experiment on other universes? You cannot, so that's a problem. And um, In this universe, let's contain the question in this universe. Okay. Uh, my point is again the same thing. If you cannot do an experiment with the current scientific paradigm, you cannot explain it. But if you want certain topics, if you want to, uh, if you want me to give uh, names, I would go to it in an entirely different direction. So, um, metaphysics, anything that is metaphysics, by definition, is beyond physics. Yeah. Is something that we cannot explain. We don't bother to explain. And mm. if people consider that as a source of knowledge, quotation marks, then uh, that is uh, outside the scope of physics or science. But maybe we could say any knowledge is explainable by any observer. By by this, I refer to your previous what you said previously. You said if we didn't see any galaxies moving further away from us, maybe we couldn't yes. even think about that. Mm -hmm. But an observer probably would have, yeah. not, not, a, not one that is living there. Mm -hmm. 
So if we are talking about knowledge, maybe that's on that's the thing physics can explain. That's that's the question actually. Do you think any knowledge can be explained by physics? By an so this observer? is like a philosophical question. It's not yeah. like the practical limitation, right? Mm -hmm. But what is the fundamental limits for acquiring knowledge? Mm -hmm. Okay. Kant, I guess, wrote a treatise about this. You can find cinematic some books too. Sure. Um, so I would not venture on any philosophy. But I, what I can say is this: so um, Karl Popper uh, is the guy that probably you should be referring to because he is basically uh, the dominant scientific methodology uh, philosopher. I call him like that. Yeah, there is a big scroll on site. Anyway, so um, he's basically saying that you need to do an experiment to explain this. Mm -hmm. If the experiments get better and better, that's like with a large hadron collider, right? You get higher energies and you can go deeper into the fundamental particles. But it could be like an onion, right? You find one particle that's around higher energy, higher energy, and then you need to add a like, larger hadron collider. Which is the size of the Earth, right? It may be possible, it may not be possible to do that. There are some radio telescopes that are scattered around the world, which uh, when operated in uh, coherence, you can actually have a telescope in effect the size of the Earth. Yeah. So people are ingenious, but at some point you are out of the Earth, so you need to go to other space telescopes, kind of to the Lyons point, just like the Telescope. So you keep doing it with science basically. This is very explained in higher energies, larger telescopes, and you, you go deeper and deeper. So that's one aspect of it. You need more resources and big science to answer deeper and deeper questions. Uh, but if there are different philosophies of science that are saying that with more complexity, then there are different fundamental things emerge. So you can't try to explain. So what I'm saying is comparison of fundamentals. Okay? So those big science things are trying to answer a very fundamental thing, yes, but then from the interaction of, let's say, nonlinear complex systems, right? From the, like, the emergence of humans, right? And the consciousness. So that is not a very high energy physics or deep space telescopes do not help to understand the brain, right? Yeah. So there is something emergent there, and that's very interesting, right? So that's very fundamental as well. And uh, those we cannot explain as well, even if we can do experiments, but mm -hmm. you need more ingenious experiments to explain what's happening in your brain. Yeah. Right? So the type of fundamental things that we are looking for, and the required experiments to study those things cover a very large spectrum. And the more you go deeper, the more you explain. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you are asking me if there is a very fundamental roadblock after which you cannot explain, <laughs> uh, the thing I would refer to is like how much you can go with an experiment is your fundamental uh, limit of acquiring scientific knowledge with the current paradigm. Yeah. But the, the scientific paradigm is also changing over time. The sure. meaning of scientific methods is also changing over that time. Um, so, 1,000 years later, they may have a different methodology entirely, and that may allow different types of knowledge which we can method and ambition right now. So that's the exciting part.
Koordinator der NATO. I, I took one of your courses recently called Waves Optics and Thermodynamics. You always somehow created an environment where everyone can ask lots of questions. Since you I should put that in the student reviews. Yeah, I I think I missed that one because because of the business, I guess. So since I began my education in Bilkent, I never had such a technical class with that much of course questions. So, so you enjoyed the class? I enjoyed the class and thank you for being a good professor. But how do you do that? Why? why <laughs> how do you? How do you create the environment that makes people ask lots well, of I, questions? I just try to create the environment that I want to be in, <laughs> and uh, I guess that helps. Sure. And but um, we could go deeper into that if you want. That's like a uh, quick answer. Yeah. Why? Well, why do you think that is usually not the case in technical courses? Is the deeper question I think. Um, so. That requires me to take other classes from <laughs> Yeah, but yes. just just take my experience. I didn't have such experience, so why do you think that would be the case? I can speculate. Sure. Um, without gossip, of course. <laughs> yeah. So it could be the case that um, I actually really don't know. I'm just thinking out right right now from what you said to me. Mm -hmm. Uh, maybe it's very much focused on the maths without focusing on the motivation of what you are doing. That could be one thing. Yeah. And I remember taking such classes as well. Like um, uh, it was just math, and the professor was putting just equations, <laughs> no discussion. And it was like reading a um, mathematical treatise, and just that. So in that kind of scenario, it could be potentially easy for the student to lose the motivation to go on and follow because if you don't know what's going to what you are doing it for and where it's going to get you towards and how it's going to connect to the rest of the big picture mm -hmm. um, that could be a problem I guess yeah. does that seem to be accurate? yeah yeah it's, it's probably accurate because they don't think about the meaning just the applications or the questions the examples not the also, there is the risk of keeping always the big picture in the mind. Because if you keep playing that, then it's also potentially easy to lose some students. Um, the, the reason being that, that's a challenge, because you need to have... Uh, you need to present the matter in a way that is understandable, and also you need to refer to a larger picture, which is something that you don't necessarily know in that class level. Uh, the professor knows, the students don't know, maybe I'm in Physics 211, sometimes you may remember I'm referring to Physics 212, sometimes I'm referring to quantum mechanics, and I'm saying that this is going to be useful here later, this is going to be useful here later, so that requires to cover a lot of things in the mind. Um, so, sometimes I give examples from future classes and say, okay, now I said this, but now forget this. Just run this in the background or remind you will understand what I mean two years later. So those kind of things, uh, it's a little bit hard to, uh, that kind of teaching style is a little bit hard to use for everyone because you need to remember all these things from different classes as well. You need to make the connections and you need to present them in a way that fits into the world. 
without scaring the students, without losing the, uh, losing the student that is following the whole thing by a simple thread. So you need to demarcate it very clearly, say that this is not within the scope of this material. It is perfectly okay for you to ignore what I'm saying on the side, it's a diversion. Mm-hmm. But for the students who are following everything with a very good picture of what's happening and with a sense of what may come, they can make use of that information to create a very nice network in their minds. And that is something very valuable, I think. That's why I'm doing that. Yeah, I think it's very valuable too. And in the semester you came for just one lecture and taught us quantum mechanics and you said, I want to teach you quantum mechanics the way I would want to learn it for the first time. And you started with a lot of postulates that quantum mechanics start with. It was quite inspiring for me. So would you say that is the right way to teach physics? That was the right way to teach physics on that particular condition. Not always. Um, the way that I teach physics to eleven, for instance, is basically following the same style, but put in a very different uh, structures. Yeah. The spirit is the same, <laughs> but the presentation at first look may look different. So you need to actually uh, consider the whole thing to understand that they are basically one and the same thing from different perspectives. Yeah. But I can say it. so. I put a lot of actual thought about these things. It's not like. Uh, I do these things slightly, uh, but it's not always easy for the students to see uh, what I am trying to do there. Yeah. And uh, it has been the case that they say that I am uh, basically going too deep or... Um, yeah, that's pretty much the concern there, because if you give too many examples from different fields to make connections, then they say that it's too deep. Mm. Yeah, the scope of this course or things like that. So there is that kind of uh, balance, uh, which is a very big challenge to uh, uh, keep. Yeah. Uh, I would definitely prefer a lot of fields one, though. You know, like well, I don't do it all the time. It's being being like, too deep is critical. Like putting that out. Being but, too deep should be good, though. Why? Why would students don't like that? And why do you think that is? As I said, some Feynman said that he's trying to give the classes in a way that even the best student in the class uh, doesn't understand every single thing. There is a little bit of stuff that is left out to, you know, for the viewers. Yeah. Forward. So, uh, if but when I teach a class, if the students already know what I am saying, there's no point in teaching that class. Sure. Right? But if you go too deep, then the students can easily look lose you. So you need to follow a structure, mm-hmm. right, uh, which allows pretty much everyone, ideally, to follow it. But there is no um, no way of making sure that every single student understands 99% of what you are saying. That is like very fundamental in teaching. Right? <laughs> so you try to capture the bulk of the class with you and try to uh, cater the needs of pretty much everyone in different parts of the class. <laughs> so there is no single recipe in uh, doing this, but we try to do our best. Uh, thank you for doing that, really. So uh, you have been studying physics for a long time, but 
A lot of people's first start in physics and diverge to seemingly unrelated areas of life like economics, art, anything you can think of really. Why do you think that is and what kind of traits have you seen in those people that eventually leads to this divergence of paths? So actually, uh, in any, any physics department, uh, in any country, uh, you can find, roughly speaking, 50% of the students eventually leave academia. Yeah. I mean, there, it has to be that way anyways, because with the very simple reason being that you cannot have so many purposes. Right? Um, and for that reason, actually, we have physics 291, because uh, we want the students to actually go to the industry and see what's, what is the industry like. And um, even after, and it's common that even after doing a PhD in physics, uh, people can leave physics and go into the industry. They go to finance, they go to consulting, they go to different companies, and uh, in, in US, this is much more common. <laughs> So, uh, it, it is, uh, I, I, it's natural, I guess, that this is... But uh, do you see any pattern in those divergent people? <laughs> or the ones who stay? The ones who stay, I can say that uh, they are the ones, uh, they are not the ones, but they, they include the ones that um, can take challenges over and over. Right? Because academia here in general is very challenging. There are different roles that you have to get into in different, uh, at different times, sometimes simultaneously. Uh, in particular, if you are an experimentalist, for instance, we need to be able to uh, do budgets, we need to be able to write projects, we need to be able to buy stuff, we need to deal people from outside the university. And then you need to write papers, proposals, talks, conferences, organize things, and then there are committees. And you need to teach classes, and you need to teach classes in a way that students are happy with. And these are just the first couple of things that might be right. So if you want to be able to do all these things in a very finite amount of time, then you need to have certain skills and you need to be able to deal with um, different types and levels of challenges sometimes simultaneously. So uh, that can be considered an achievement and, uh, or it could be considered something that you don't want to do, right? So it depends on where you put your meaning. And uh, in, the, in, in the end, if that's something that you like and if you are trying to achieve something, uh, that's okay. But in the end, you can say, like, I want to uh, go to this company and they're doing something very interesting. That's also perfectly fine and respectable. <laughs> so, um, and, and there are many challenges, but different types, types of challenges in those paths of life as well. So, uh, it's not easy to say which pattern is more common in which path. So, you have been experiencing a lot of academia, like you said. Are there anything you would want to change in it? What is the ideal academia for Honor Tokel? Hmm. Um, it's a tough question. I mean, ideal is something that does not exist in the real world after all. So, yeah, but uh, maybe it's like an ideal in the sense of 
plateau, like an utopian you idea. Can, you can't think of that is actually realistic and something that we can attain by working hard. Uh, you can give me both of them, actually. Oh, I shoot myself in the foot. Created <laughs> additional questions. Um, I guess maybe common to both of these things, if I think about it, could be something that uh, students and professors and everybody is, I'm not going to say happy, mm -hmm. okay, but uh, everybody is. Uh, aspiring to something and trying to fulfill their own potential and a place where this is allowed and encouraged and uh, it should provide, the environment should pro provide habitats mm -hmm. uh, for this kind of uh, development and uh, I, I guess that would be the common thing for both the ideal one and the one that could potentially be attained. Do you have any projects for making that better? We work all the time for that. I mean, uh, uh, within the constraints, the very constraints that we have, uh, we don't do everything great. Uh, actually, I'm still in my, uh, one of my undergraduate uh, professors told this. We don't do everything great, but we are doing a lot of things good. Mm -hmm. Right? Or great, or that matter. And so you just try to keep uh, doing better, doing more, and uh, with the finite resources and time that you have, you need to strategize and uh, for a specific example, actually, what we are doing is for making a more uh, livelier environment, we are doing uh, open houses recently for the last three to five years now invite potential uh, prospective graduate students to come and see from different parts of the country or international students. Um, that's one thing that, that uh, we did uh, some work on and uh, we always keep thinking on uh, what we can do. So we are open to suggestions from the students as well. Okay, I, I will try to give mm -hmm. after we talk maybe. Okay. Um, so, what is the advice for undergrads and grads? What would you say to yourself if you could meet that version of yourself? Well, I, I guess for undergraduates, uh, it's the part of your life where uh, you are getting into, into adulthood. So, you should establish your independence and uh, enjoy the process mm -hmm. along the way. At the same time, you should not uh, ignore your classes because this college life is a four-year period and it passes quickly after all. So uh, once that's over, then they're going to ask you what you have done during that period. Mm -hmm. So while uh, you should have, by this time, developed a philosophy of balance mm -hmm. for yourself and during your college life, you should try to develop yourself to the fullest. We can provide a good environment for that and you should take advantage of it. Uh, similar, there are good universities in Turkey. Um, as for the graduate students, it's a different uh, thing. They, they need to actually uh, do the research. Yes, they need to take classes, and, but uh, the importance of classes is less there and the importance of research is much more higher there. They need to uh, create something 
mean, write a thesis and uh, if possible go to a conference or two. So uh, those things would be valuable. Yeah. As for the Android projects, by the way, it's a good idea to uh, take different courses, mm -hmm. especially in the very early times, in the first two years, to explore uh, what could pick your interest in different fields a little bit. Yeah. Uh, so, how did your interests in physics, physics areas, and other areas change over the years, especially before your higher education, after graduate, maybe after PhD? So, in my PhD, I was doing uh, laser uh, matter interactions at the quantum mechanical level, <laughs> and. In, in some sense, you can call it laser spectroscopy because you can tune your laser wavelength to a specific rotational, vibrational, quantum mechanical state and then excite that one and then we could image it <laughs> and go back to the original interaction and learn stuff about what happens when a photon collides with a molecule. How does the energy redistribution happen at the quantum <laughs> mechanical level? But that's a very fundamental. Uh, Study, right? So after graduation, after PhD, my interests are uh, quite wide, and uh, the laser material interaction part remain, but it went from the quantum mechanical uh, understanding level to a more practical, or not practical, but application heavy, or uh, the emphasis basically is moving from very much understanding the quantum mechanics to actually laser micro nano lithography and its applications. Mm -hmm. There is still very, very interesting physics, uh, don't get me wrong, but that work that I did in my PhD had no device level application. It had applications on atmospheric physics and so on mm -hmm. and so forth, but not like an actual device that you can hold up here, you can have an optical element, for instance, you can create. So yeah, it's that kind of trend, and this is very common. People tend to move from one neighboring area to another neighboring area. Uh, maybe every five, seven, ten years, you can do these kind of things. Uh, so there is that kind of uh, shift. But the general theme of the uh, light matter interaction theme is uh, what's connecting everything. How did you pick that one from all the areas of physics? Um, it could be something else. There is an interesting thing in physics. If you actually find a topic that is reasonably interesting, and if you keep working, it's working on it. So you find something interesting, and interesting stuff keeps coming out, and yeah. then it's like a, um, a thread. A thread that's like wrapped up. You untangle it. Yeah. It is coming. So uh, I can't envision myself being as happy. Uh, on working on a different subject. The mm -hmm. actual specific uh, research question, uh, as you uh, uh, talked about meaning, it's not like an absolute meaning, right? but the things that you do answering the question and following it through and connecting to different places and improving it and answering things that nobody tried to answer before or tried to answer but failed better feeling. So, uh, that kind of process is the fun thing. And uh, this particular thing, that light matter interaction, happened to be something that I was finding interesting in, in, in my fourth year in college. I was taking courses about optics and photonics. So uh, I, I'm actually a graduate of electrical engineering. 
and, uh, and in that time, the curriculum forced us to focus on a specific subjects. Hmm. So I focused on optics. Nice. So uh, from that time on, uh, it's going on. Uh, so, how do you think about being a theorist and experimentalist? You eventually, I guess, would call yourself experimentalist, but how did that shift happen? You mentioned you were into theory a little bit more, I guess, in your PhD. Yeah, how did that happen? Well, in, in the PhD, we were doing a lot of experiments, actually. Mm. Um, Sorry. No, no, we, we had theory as well. Uh-huh. After we were collaborating with theorists, but myself. Uh, it was experimental, more experimental than uh, theory. Mm-hmm. But currently, uh, for instance, maybe twenty percent of what we are doing, I would call theory uh, simulations. Sometimes it gets larger. This recently, the Nature Photonics paper with our colleagues at Weekend, it's like ninety percent theory. Yeah. Uh, so uh, we t- we try to do a good amount of theory because we want to understand what we are doing. Yeah. And we do it at a level that is, I would say, quite deep at the, when compared to the rest of the world. Okay? Because we want to answer fundamental questions and to answer fundamental questions you need to know what you are doing. Uh, you, you cannot teach people into, you know, uh, at this level of science, it doesn't work like that. You actually need to know what you are doing and you need to convince people that what you do is reasonable and sound and checks with all these cross-checks. So you need to understand the experiment, you need to understand the theory, you need to understand the entire field and you need to contribute to it. So your research focuses a lot on optoelectronics, photonic crystals. Can you explain what they are first? For the ones who don't know and why they're interesting for you to research. Recently, what we are doing is uh, we are uh, introducing functionality into silicon. Okay. Okay. And we did a very nice paper on that one a couple of years ago, which was basically allowing you to create three D um, modifications buried inside silicon layers, and then uh, yeah, it was very interesting. It's half organizational. Uh, microstructure, which is basically a bottom-up fabrication approach compared to a top-down fabrication approach. So it has very interesting scalability aspects, but uh, without going into that thing, from a practical uh, application-wise, we introduced the first functionality of silic- inside silicon, which is the most important technological material. Mm-hmm. Now it was at one micron level, resolution is very important in electrography. And now, actually, today I was writing a cover letter uh, for an editor. So now we took it down to 100 nanometers. So it, uh, you, you may even uh, hear about this in the coming days if it gets published, when it gets published, I should say. And then that would be the first nanofabrication capability inside. Say. So, and then we can make devices out of it. Right? So we are excited about this uh, prospect. Sounds very cool. Well, hopefully, uh, once we publish it, then I will be making it more public and give the details, so that will be more fun. But at this stage, I won't say anymore. <laughs> sure. What were the main problems in your areas that you solved, and which you are still actively trying to solve in your head? What problems bug you the most recently about those? I can't answer that question in the previous one. Um, so, 
Uh, when I started in the field, there wasn't any devices inside silicon. So mm -hmm. let alone any optical microscope method to see what's inside silicon. If, if you say, imagine that you did something inside silicon, how are you going to see it? It's something transparent, right? So we, we solved multiple problems at the same time. And then we brought it uh, to a level that you can actually create holograms. And then we use those holograms, again, with our colleagues here, and others, uh, to actually create a three-dimensional, 3D holography. Mm -hmm. And we were not necessarily people working uh, in holography fields per se, but we did a very good contribution there, I think. And it was on the cover of Nature Photonics. Yeah. So that emerged from the supplementary information of the previous paper. Mm -hmm. so in that sense, it is an interesting uh, development. And now I'm, in some sense, leveraging the two together to boost the resolution of fabrication and resolution. Fabrication and resolution is very important in lithography because that defines on how small you can make things. In the context of conventional fabrication, it defines how small you can make your chips inside your computers. Okay. So you can extrapolate from there the value of making the resolution smaller inside silicon. Any device that you can make will be scaled down, and there could be interesting new applications, such as potentially uh, metasurface or metametallic optics varying inside silicon. Three-dimensional integration, on-chip, in-chip integration, microfluidics. Um, we have a European Union project that is connecting these things with microfluidics, for instance. Mm -hmm. So there could be very uh, interesting and exciting applications, and some of them are very actually working on, and some of them are planning to work on, time permitting. <laughs> I hope. Yes, so do you still have problems about that, or you this one solves everything? This, in science, you don't get to solve everything. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know. But not even in your own field. <laughs> so, and it would be very boring if you solve everything as well. Luckily, any good scientific work brings about new scientific questions. Mm -hmm. So there is that nice trend. If you do a good job, that means that you will have more questions to answer for. Mm -hmm. And uh, if that, uh, if you don't create any new questions, maybe, maybe you can change the question to a different one. Did this one bring new questions for you? It did, uh, yes. So for instance, can we make atomic crystals inside silicon? Can we make metamaterials inside silicon? Can we make three-dimensional nanophotonic devices inside silicon? Can we integrate them uh, multiple levels or even on chip integration? And some more, yeah. Okay. So, what is the most struggling for you when you try to give the scientific community and the world a new paper? Which part do you struggle the most usually? The theory part, the experiment part, the money-gathering part, or the publishing part? Um, each one has their challenges, but if you do something very new, <laughs> they don't know. Uh, one example is, is I, my, uh, one of my projects. I, in the early times, I was writing a project saying that I'm going to do some laser lithography inside silicon, and here is some preliminary data showing that it's possible. <laughs> and the real world told me that uh, very nice, if only you did this in silicon instead of glass. He has seen this in glass, he thinks it's in glass, but I wrote that it's in silicon. So even if it says silicon, mm -hmm. experts in the field can take what they have seen before and assume that it's glass and then say that 
Yeah, yeah, it's very nice. If only it was not in the last and it was in Sicily. <laughs> but it was in Sicily. <laughs> so, um, and it was written with bold in multiple places. Mm -hmm. necessarily. This shows that even scientists have bias. They are affected by things that they have seen and the familiar things. So, breaking uh, that sense of familiarity with something new and convincing people mm -hmm. is one of the most challenging things, I think. Yeah, uh, but that doesn't necessarily happen to be all the time because you don't always do that fundamental stuff all the time. Sure. Um, so what you said in other aspects are also important. So mm -hmm. we do experimental work. Uh, uh, you need to find write a proposal to get grant uh, funding to uh, do that work, right? Yeah. Um, so they they have a challenge. There is always a competition. So my suggestion for the students should be to prepare for. Uh, to prepare for a continual competition. Mm. It's not going to be like, okay, I compete enough, it's enough. <laughs> uh, unless you do a very well-defined, potentially boring company job. But even there, I assume there should be some kind of competition. Yeah, of course, of course. So it's like part of life. I was gonna mention that Next, actually, do you, do you think you have enough freedom to choose what to study in academia, or do you think some companies give you better environments in physics? Um, the freedom is not infinite, anyway. Sure. So you you always work with some kind of constraints, and uh, sometimes, not always, sometimes those constraints can help you to be creative. <laughs> but if they are to a crippling degree, that doesn't allow creativity, so you need to find ways to open that uh, area. Mm -hmm. um, I would say we have a reasonable amount of that, and um, for instance in the US there is a different effect in many places, what you, you may call this as with directed creativity, and it happens this way. So the DARPA the agencies, funding agencies of the army of US, for instance, they say that we need this kind of projects, very well defined. Okay. And then people compete for that call, or proposals, and then get funded, and they do that kind of specific thing. Mm -hmm. So that allows you to do the research, but that is directed towards okay. the needs of the army. But I'll tell you what is the alternative, then you may not be able to find any funding, and then you do that. Okay? So that's a constraint. And some people prefer that, some people don't prefer that, but this kind of effect of life is there. Uh, there are different funding agencies funding different things at different levels everywhere. So you need to identify uh, which is the best for what you are trying to do. Okay. Okay. So are you still going for side quests? Do you sometimes wonder and think about other physics problems that is not in your area, but you were once interested in? Um, like you cannot go too much out. And yeah. Of course, you can go and read something and <laughs> uh, enjoy it and things like that. But to actually work on something requires a lot of attention, especially um, when there is uh, larger constraints that you put it that way in certain times. But there is all, not always. Uh, the same amount of course, I said, also changes over time. Mm -hmm. So you, you need to focus, and uh, of course, I try to read as much as I can, but you cannot read every single paper coming out, not even in your area. Mm -hmm. So, um, 
Every once in a while, you try to uh, choose somewhat as much as you can to read different stuff. Yes. Okay. Uh, in one of our lectures, I remember you have talked about your work published in big scientific journals. One of them is Nature, uh, which were about holograms. Can you briefly talk about how you achieved that in simple terms? And tell me how did that uh, dream you develop while watching Star Wars, Star Wars coming through mm -hmm. felt? Developed that paper with Omar Rajat, Bidai, and he's also a Star Wars fan, uh, yeah. as much as I. And um, so, for me, like, why but can you remember is, in the silicon paper, we made a simple hologram, and it was dark paper from Star Wars. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, the paper was reviewed and accepted, like that. But then the editors said that, that it's copyrighted material. And at the time, or just before the time, Lucas Arts, the makers of Star Wars, mm -hmm. uh, was purchased by Disney, Walt Disney, yeah. which is evil. So don't be come uh, by the Mickey Mouse. Mickey Mouse is evil because they said that even if we, even if you get, uh, if I remember correctly, they said even if you get permissions from Walt Disney, we wouldn't want to. But mm -hmm. that's because they can't sue us. So we had to remove them. One of the good thing came out of it is we put the big camp over there. Mm -hmm. But then uh, we were interested in putting, getting back to them. So um, we put the X links in the supplementary video of the next paper. Mm -hmm. Nice. And there is on the cover, we have a spaceship that looks like it. So mm -hmm. you cannot put this up. <laughs> but, so th those are little things that we may have our fun. But uh, that doesn't necessarily go to the science of yeah, sure. what uh, you are then. But yes, you can have some uh, fun with that. Can, can you tell me a little bit about how you managed that, yes. making the hologram part? So, uh, what you do is you store, you try to store the 3D information of an object in the 2D plane of a hologram. Mm -hmm. And then you do it in a way, mathematically, which I cannot easily describe, of course. but I can attempt to, at least in some sense. And then, you try to project this 3D object uh, with different parts of the object projected into different consecutive planes, <laughs> under the condition that individual planes do not cross-contaminate each other. This is, in some sense, like a ring sum. Imagine that you have this curve, to, like in calculus, Mm -hmm. You divide it into small pieces, and then once you combine them next side by side, you have a continuous curve, right? Mm -hmm. You can do the same thing with a 3D object. You divide it into pieces. Is there a limit to how thin you can get? Yes, there is a limit. Okay. So, uh, it is related to the depth of field of the projection lines that you encode on the SLM. Okay. <laughs> uh, but uh, you can have enough number of layers mm -hmm. because the, you can put them closer and closer by simply making your projection of hologram larger and larger. If you give me a hologram that is the size of this wall, mm -hmm. then I can make this projection in a very realistic way. But uh, one thing is we are solving the half of the problem and once you project it, how are you going to see this? You need a medium. You should be able to scatter the light towards your your observer or their eyes yeah. uh, 
in a threshold anyway. So if the intensity is lower than something, it doesn't maybe scatter anything. If it's above something, it scatters uniformly over. Then you can see this object. Of course, there is a problem. So the light could be scattered from the back parts and the forward parts, so that you will see a transparent object. You can solve that problem. But you can do some tricks to solve that maybe in the future. And we don't do that because we don't have the medium. So we solve only half fundamental big problem. You need the second part. But one day, if it is solved, then maybe you can have actually real 3D holograms, not like a gimmicky things. But this uh, this problem, uh, when we solved it, also it was very hard to explain to people because this idea of 3D holography is everywhere. Mm -hmm. There are fake companies, yeah. fake uh, com uh, articles, papers, they always say we have video holography. Hmm. Actually, when we did the paper, we thought somebody must have done this before because we have seen so many stuff that is 3D. Yeah. But we keep looking and looking and cannot find. And, and then eventually you start to understand that it's not solved. Um, we will see, maybe one day somebody develops a non-linear medium. When would, you, when would you guess, like, how many years? Till we see. It. it could be one year, it could be hundred years. Mm. It's, it looks at just one. It's not something that I work on. Like, I don't develop a linear medium. Yeah. So, not in my field, but I can imagine that it's within our lifetimes, but I might be wrong. I hope. I hope. Yeah. That so, could be another way of doing, achieving the same effect without yeah. these things as well. So, Do you have any ideas for that? Um, th there are some other methods that allow you to move particles and trap particles and do things mm -hmm. like move them fast things like that. So let's see what happens, we don't know. Okay. Um, will you bring other technological dreams to life? What would you try to bring to life from sci-fi if you had the chance? The first part, I will not answer. That would be spoiler. <laughs> if I knew. <laughs> okay. uh, but if I had the power to imagine, you know, if I go to sci-fi, <laughs> One of my favorite books is Foundation by Isaac Asimov. Oh, yeah. So, by the way, I can recommend some sci-fi books. Yeah, probably uh, everyone would be. Isaac Asimov's Foundation is very nice because he's actually uh, bringing uh, prediction capable to physics into social sciences. Mm -hmm. And he's making a prediction. So, in there, there's this galactic civilization that is collapsing and this eternal civilization, once it collapses, there will be a 30,000 year of dark ages. Mm -hmm. And he makes certain predictions which make it down, which he's trying to make it down to a couple of hundred years or thousand years. And the whole book is about how this is possible, or but, but if, it were, if it were possible, how it, were, would, how it would work out. <laughs> okay? It was quite fun. And if I had science fiction magic, I would bring that in. Okay. Yes. Okay. As for books recommendation, book, yeah. um, it, it's not that it is a movie that I am bringing this about, but Dune, hmm. in particular, because I read it maybe twenty years ago. Uh, in particular, the first book. Hmm. So it is a series of six books by Frank Herbert. Yeah, right? I think I guess. The first one. Maybe the second and third one, which are not that long, is something that... Uh, but definitely the first one is something I would recommend. Uh, how did you find the movie? The recent movie. Yeah. So there is the 1987 yeah. movie. <laughs> not that one. There is also the TV series, which is better. Hmm. And now there is this new version, which is really good. Yeah. 
um, but I haven't seen the second part. So the, the, the movie is divided into two pieces. <laughs> the, it is basically covering the first book. And now we will see the second half of the first book. So let's see that one. And then if it is as good as the first part, yes, that would be good. So you have collaborated with a lot of people in your papers. How does that? How does the decision-making process go when there's a lot of people involved? And how democratic is it? And how much it should be, in your view? Recently, I am collaborating. I was quite uh, nicely collaborating with Amelia, so mm-hmm. I should definitely acknowledge him. And uh, many other people. Before I came to Turkey, I was at Harvard and before that at Cornell. Yeah. And uh, they are like Paul Houston. So um, this uh, in the experimental science sciences, I would say that there is, in some sense, uh, in particular in physics and in different subdisciplines, there is an established sense of uh, collaboration. So um, I can say that the first author of the paper is just doing. Uh, a significant part of the job, and also there is, of course, the corresponding author of last author who is providing the environment, lab funding, and also contributing to the rest of the paper. So those kind of uh, uh, contributions are critical. Also, there are second, third authors which are contributing in different aspects. So you, sometimes it could doesn't even have to be the entire thing; they can have their own well-defined parts. Mm-hmm. And uh, basically, it's a coordination thing between the first author and the corresponding author, so they are arranging the whole thing. And um, basically, it's more or less uh, relatively well defined who is doing what in the paper and who is doing which contribution. So once that is crystallized towards the end of the paper, then you kind of put these things in the author list and Um, Yeah, but for example, you want the experiment to go one way, for example, but Mm -hmm. the the powerful one, I guess, the idea bringer one says it should be another way. How how do you solve that? It could happen, but uh, what you do is you basically, science is something that you discuss and you are trying to get a certain aim, right? If you can see how you get to that path from point A to point B, if you can see the, the main direction, you can go like this or like this, so that's okay. That doesn't matter. Of course, if you don't have any ideas to how to get there, then you are doing pondering, right? Mm-hmm. That pondering is not going to be constrained with much time. So it depends on uh, how much you know where you are going, at which point you are, how much you can you know, guess what's happening. And uh, if you can see these things, it is easier. And more, I, I can't say that it would work with a consensus-based uh, strategy because you are trying to make a strategy to get there. Yeah. If I can see that I'm trying to get to that door far away, it would not be reasonable to go this way and then go this way. But if you don't see the door, you are you, you may have a sense of it's like behind the trees over there. I should go in that direction and let me see. So you, you try to do that one then. Did did in your uh, experience did ever did it did ego ever get in the way of doing research? Did you ever see people that? Not in my case, but I have seen around uh, definitely, uh, in particular in uh, places like uh, Harvard or uh, Cornell. I, I have heard 
those kind of things. Uh, well, maybe it could be a matter of statistics because they have a larger number of uh, labs and each lab may have a larger number of students and it's competitive. So it could be the case that it's a matter of statistics. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but I didn't encounter it in my personal experience. So okay. Maybe I'll pass that. Uh, did did that thing at Harvard that you heard or uh, that you heard? It's ex- like second hand here, you hear open mm. and can copy you here that something uh, yeah. somebody says you this that. So I can approve it even. Yeah, yeah, sure. But uh, did did those things contribute to you your coming back to Turkey? No, that one is mostly gossip. Uh, yeah, coffee shop gossip. <laughs> But I mean, if you if you hear enough number of times, you would think that there is some related to it because sure. it's coming from to my people. Um, so, um, what was the reason for that? Then? You're coming back. Coming back. Mm-hmm. Um, this this reminds me of something else. Actually, let me not direct answer it, and then okay. okay. So you know when we have when we. And you guys actually come here. There is a class that you take in physics, physics one of seven, I think. Mm-hmm. Right, like when you get to meet with the faculty and yeah, yeah, chess one one two zero, I guess one two zero. Yeah, okay, I yeah, yeah. All right. So basically, uh, physics students, freshmen come together, mm-hmm. and every week they meet with a different faculty member and do like one hour chess. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in, in my case, that's once like one or two years ago, maybe two, three. I don't know. Pandemic may have <laughs> but in in one of those cases, uh, one of the questions was this: uh, the students raised uh, his hand and said, uh, "Do you think I should come back?" I'm like, "You are here. Where are you coming back?" <laughs> he, he's like, oh, "No, no. Um, I mean, like, I will go." leave the country after I graduate and then should I <laughs> yeah. but, like he's asking five years ten years <laughs> it, it might be me by the way <laughs> yeah. so um, I don't know I don't remember the face of the student but uh, that, that is uh, a question that uh, that's a little bit unfortunate because in our time when we left the country every single one of us not every single one of us but like a significant portion of us would be thinking like uh, once we finish our education here we would be there with opportunities back in Turkey we would come back right? uh, um, but for instance students from China India Vietnam mm-hmm. those kind of Eastern countries uh, students coming from there would have no interest of coming back all right so it was not a very uh, weird thing to think that uh, why should I come back? So that, that's more like a natural question. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in, in over the years, I think, in particular, maybe even recently, that became more like uh, what you are asking or what you may have asked before. Mm-hmm. There could be a trend of uh, outward flux compared to inward flux. Yeah. But to overcome at least some aspects of it, we are doing open house and other things, but 
Uh, yes, you are right. Uh, there seems to be some kind of upward trend, which is something that we don't want. Um, and but we would want to be hopeful and uh, hope that uh, there will be a, um, a different stable equilibrium point where uh, the, in, in the inward and outward fluxes become at least equal. So was it a political answer? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's kind of is because you you didn't talk about your own experience. Why did what did what no, contributes I mean, to yours? I, kind of answer it. It, well, I had that kind of. Uh, it seems like my decisions are pre-made. Like hmm. I have a tendency, and then I go and do it. Yeah. So like right choosing physics or optics or mind or cunning. So hmm. you see this kind of like I don't kind of make, I guess, immediate decisions. I kind of guess that this is the path and hmm. follow a kind of thing. Maybe okay. it's like that. So, um, but of course, uh, you, you, over the time, you keep thinking and re-evaluating every single decision. It may work out the way that you imagined in the beginning, maybe. Uh, but some people, it changes. So, uh, I, I think it's valuable for even students who are living in uh, Turkey because eventually, with the education that they have, They may come back, hopefully some portion of them, and then they will create a more diverse uh, place in Turkey. Let me put it that way. So uh, I will come back to your research areas now. So how do you envision the future of laser nanofabrication and silicon wafers after your paper comes out maybe? And what are the potential breakthroughs that could revolutionize microelectronic and optoelectronic manufacturing, what is the dream? One fantastic thing would be an, a, a, an extension of what we are doing in the European project right now. What we are doing there is we are trying to create microfluidic channels buried inside chips. Okay. And uh, a postdoc in our group is trying to uh, make magnetic circuitry on top of the silicon wafer. And then mm -hmm. what we are interested in is that controlling the behavior of the magnetic circuitry with the microfluidic uh, channels carrying cooling water or even heating water, depending on what you want to do. So if you can do some kind of heat management, if you can show this, that would be the prelude to achieving something even more important. That is, if you can have heat management in computer chips in the future, that would potentially allow for running your computer chips much faster mm -hmm. because then you can remove the excess heat yeah. and if you can extract it in a controllable way with engineered microchannels that are you know, creating created in a way that is like forming a network or managing microfluidic channels, if you can do some kind of heat management and engineering then maybe you can run that faster. So that could have exciting applications. I don't, I, I am doubting even asking this question but does it potentially have any application in quantum Uh, quantum computation, like For they, they need a lot of. You need to get to a very small, I guess, resolution. Like current levels that we have is not enough. I, guess. Probably. I mean, for anything that is quantum, you need to get down to the nanometer level, mm -hmm. uh, and you need to have a kind of resolution. Not it's not enough to create 10 nanometer voids in silicon. You should be able to control them where you want them, mm -hmm. create a 3D or 2D structure make a quantum well or maybe even just with the monetary lab we need to add the protein or different materials mm -hmm. to that pack. So that's kind of I'm actually asking for cooling 
just for cooling. Uh, for cooling, you need micro channels. You don't need to have much. You can have very big channels carrying water. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, we are interested in showing the proof of concept of the idea. If we can show that one, then maybe you can write another project and uh, do it in a more advanced way. Uh, but there are challenges there as well because in Turkey we don't do transistors, so we need to find collaborators. That's always hard. I hope it works out well. How was your work on slicing crystalline silicon wafers through deep surf- subsurface laser processing and selective chemical etching impacted the manufacturing process? What improvements can we expect to see in the future on that one? That actually kind of relates to opening channels because mm-hmm. once you have a process that you can remove crystal yeah. or modified crystal with the laser actually in an D or find out the version, <laughs> then you can remove parts in a way that you want them to be at different shapes, sizes and scales. And once you start opening holes, uh, this could be in the form of a void or rectangle tube slice, half slice, you see, you can, and, and some of them can move into MAMS or even NAMS, non-electromechanical systems. <laughs> some of them can make uh, photonic crystals, maybe. Some of them can maybe make waveguides, depending on the control that you can exert. Um, if you can make, for instance, buried and curved waveguides, <laughs> there is a field called silicon photonics, which is located on the surface. Yeah. Now, the fundamental limit of waveguides that we create inside silicon is the refractive index contrast between the laser-modified parts mm-hmm. and the crystal silicon. The details is not important, but if you can have a optical index contrast that is 100 times larger than what we have now, or 1000 times larger than what we have now, then you can relocate the silicon photonics field mm-hmm. from the top of the wafer to the inside of the wafer, or you can do multiple levels. Mm-hmm. But note that I said 1,000 times. Yeah. 1,000 times is not something that's very easy, so it's a very big challenge. But that requires a couple of things. One of them is the lithographic resolution should go from micro level to nano level. The second thing is you need to be able to develop a chemical agent that would remove these areas still at the nano scale. Mm-hmm. And then, then yes, you can have a new field. So there will be multiple challenges. You will ask them what kind of problems can come up. So mm-hmm. each time you solve a problem, new problems can come up. And not necessarily all of them are solvable. We will be seeing. So you do you plan on any changing of fields? Because this area seems very rich, but do you have any plans for shifting? So it can converge or connect to different things. Uh, for instance, the example that I gave, memory studies, was not something that I was involved in <laughs> or even experienced in. But uh, we have a postdoc coming from us, international postdoctoral scientist, who is giving this particular experience and with the European Union funding. Right? So yes. if you find those kind of opportunities, then you can integrate them into your field and it becomes an interdisciplinary thing, so you can go in that direction. Or you can start making non-photonic devices mm-hmm. uh, with silicon, if you can. Uh, currently, at the microfabrication level, you cannot do it. But if you can reach to nano-level, then it opens new things. For instance, the question is, can you make metamaterials? That would be exciting, right? And I try a new thing. Mm-hmm. We weren't doing much work there, but that could evolve to there. 
Well, it remains to be seen uh, with the demonstrated advances. We can uh, decide which ones we can tackle. Okay. So I'm going to shift to a more um, undergraduate physics level, maybe. So. Um, how do you think about the concepts concepts in physics? For example, uh, wave function doesn't seem to be real in like energy is real in that sense at least. It just shows itself in observations, but in a very um, non-connected way, a very different way than energy does in classical physics. Function versus energy. Yes. Okay. Uh, how do you think of the modern physical concepts with relation to classical physical ones? That's a very broad question. Like yes, how but think about um, like what I'm asking is, do you think the concepts should be like energy, or do you think it should be like wave functions? Because well, I, I always say one thing, it is what it is. So, uh, it's not like up to me to decide whether yeah, the yeah, behavior is behaving in a certain way. But what I can say is the quantum mechanics is our deepest fundamental understanding of nature. So, uh, and it puts to experiments. Until a theory comes up which explains things in a better way, while also capturing the things that the quantum mechanics is already explaining, then we are back with this one. The mathematics, there are no problems. It just works beautifully and yes. we know how to make it work. The only thing is the interpretation part. Mm -hmm. And the reason that there is some freedom in interpretation is that we cannot do an experiment to differentiate between these different interpretations. So yes. what happens then is that we can, we can choose whichever one you like. Uh, the most common one is the Copenhagen interpretation. Mm -hmm. And there is more pilot wave theory, so we can check those. Let things. me frame the question a bit different, differently. Think of a new, new, um, new field that is saying, like coming up with every possible observation that quantum mechanics already does, and it makes the same results. But it has only real concept, not wave functions. Let's say we have that. Which which one would you choose then? So are you asking me if um, there was freedom yes. of choice between two theories? Yes. That's basically asking if I like one pilot wave versus Copenhagen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's kind of like that, yes. But um, I don't think it's it's not as right, successful I as quantum mechanics. What I'm trying to ask is if, there, if I am biased towards a uh, yes. more... Um, Traditional towards a theory where every single component in the theory is immeasurable. Mm -hmm. Because in the quantum mechanics, the wave function itself is it's not a measurable thing. Yes. But we calculate it, we take the square of it, <laughs> and then makes probabilistic predictions. But you need to see one thing the wave function, which is a probability wave, mm -hmm. evolves with a very uh, deterministic equation itself. Yes. So the probability wave is behaving in a deterministic way. <laughs> yeah. So and then you cannot measure the probability wave itself. <laughs> it has this very funny uh, nature. 
And um, I, I am not necessarily biased against one of those. Um, I, I guess it's a matter of um, I, I don't want to repeat what I said about uh, Copenhagen interpretation of private way, but I mean, you can choose one of them. It's not like one of one of these things doesn't seem to be more fundamental than mm. another one. People try to, okay, here's the deal. If one of them makes a new prediction that the other yeah. one doesn't make, yeah. Yeah. then you go ahead and you are talking, these theories are very constrictive. Mm-hmm. There are many constraints, and it's bound. If it's a very different thing, which is explaining very much of the same large set of experiments, you are bound to find a prediction that this one makes and the other one doesn't make. And you should look for it and do an experiment and see if it works or not. If it works, then you switch to that one until you find a better one. <laughs> it works that way. But uh, it feels. Mm, it it feels probable to me that two models always make make same predictions but have different postulates. Take uh, special relativity and Newton's uh, laws, right? Yes. Yeah. So special relativity makes all the predictions with that is doing plus it has plus other predictions. Sure, but, but is, about that. isn't it possible that they always make the same predictions but? With other concepts, like different concepts, um, it, it, it, it looks mathematically impossible. Mm-hmm. As I said, in the Copenhagen interpretation versus bomb fight, that you don't separate them. Yeah. You need to live you, with them. Do you think that part matters then, or it doesn't matter? Um, you mean like having multiple interpretations? Interpretations matters or not? Um, it probably does at some level, okay. and it will probably matter more in the future at some point. But as I said, I mean, it's about being able to make uh, experiments, and um, that's the way that the scientific method works, as we talked in the beginning. So. Um, Fantastically, quantum mechanics is working in a very large set of experiments with different regimes at uh, small scales. Mm-hmm. And um, there, any theory that would come and choose with, that would present itself with a single interpretation should have to explain a lot of stuff. Sure. And that won't be uh, very soon, I guess. Because the current theory is very successful. Mm-hmm. But I mean, um, people said that physics is finished 100 years ago. They said that there are only two problems that are not left solved. One of them is black body radiation, mm-hmm. uh, which gave uh, quantum mechanics, and the other yes. problem was um, ether. Ah, yeah. Existence of ether, which gives yeah. special relativity. So um, now there is entanglement, or the Big Bang and the global entropy state of the universe in the Big Bang. So there are questions uh, that may give fundamental changes in our understanding, or not. Yeah. That remains to be seen. I saw a recent debate on Twitter that is about the books that 
books about quantum mechanics and other others people debate a lot which one is better which one is not which one should be taught in schools and which one shouldn't well, what's your thoughts on that and what would you recommend um so you know in modern physics i am using randy hex um, mm-hmm. in physics 212 that's a nice uh, book uh, and um he was nice enough to uh, send me some additional material mm-hmm. in the book itself I will check uh, Steven Weinberg's new book. Uh, let's see how he he's always a very good pedagogical writer, so I enjoyed uh, many of his books. And then uh, at a, a later level, uh, there is uh, Griffiths, <laughs> Shankar, in particular the mathematical introduction at the beginning of Shankar is fantastic. And then at later stages, there's Sakurai. So we always use the portraits <laughs> instead of the names of the books. Yeah, yeah. I, I do not like the book by Pezzarovich so much. Mm, okay. Um, Good to know. But it's a matter of taste, so you can find useful stuff, I'm sure. And it's, it was very pedagogical, if I remember correctly. I didn't check it for some time. Uh, but um, the, these are the ones that come to my mind. Do you plan on writing a book, maybe? Because you are good at teaching, so... You should say that many more times so that people hear about it. <laughs> it's good to uh, Maybe one day, I, I don't know, um, that it uh, depends on... So um, I'm focused on writing papers. Yeah, yeah, I know, but after retiring, maybe. Maybe, if I live that long, <laughs> I will definitely consider it. Uh, people do consider uh, those things. It could be a chapter, it could be a book. Uh, if I think that it's presenting a new, unique approach, why not? So, it was very good to have you here. Thanks a lot for coming Thank again. Thank you for having me. Yeah. It's a pleasure. Thank you.